blessed us in so many ways, and we want to praise you for all that you've done. Um, open our eyes um, to what you have for us today. Um, open our hearts um, and ears to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning, Common Ground. Wow, oh, uh, welcome to another Sunday morning of worshiping the Lord and just being together with one another, encouraging one another in love and good deeds because that's what we are supposed to do here, isn't it? Uh, we want to encourage you with some opportunities that uh, are available here. And the first one is the Wednesday night Bible study is no more. It is now the Wednesday morning Bible study. And I think you should go just to show Evan your support in creating a good graphic, being able to change evening to morning. Very good. Well done. Uh, and by the way, they're in John chapter 5, so you can jump in. You don't have to feel like you missed anything. You can jump right in there and get caught up with them. Uh, today, right after the message, we're going to have a class on child dedication. We want to explain a little bit about how Christian Missionary Alliance uh, does, uh, what do we do with our children? And it's a biblical foundation, and, and we have a lot of babies here, you know, a lot of little ones growing up. Uh, maybe we even have some that have grown a little bit. It doesn't have to just be infants. Uh, it's just something that if you want to do as a parent to say, we recognize our child as a gift from God, and we want to dedicate our child to grow up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, um, we are going to provide an opportunity for people to do that in services coming down the road. So that's right after the service. We encourage you to hang around and learn more about that. And then we have our women's uh, studies, which is on Saturday mornings at 10 o'clock over in our fellowship hall, uh, studying through a book called What Love Requires, A Path to the Deeper Life by Ellie Page. And we want to encourage you ladies to jump in and be a part of that. Now this one, uh, coming up on November 14th, we're having the South Dakota, uh, South Dakota Kids Belong uh, after our service, uh, they're going to provide a lunch for us, so free food, bonus, right? But I really want to encourage you to come to that because uh, there is a huge need that we may not be aware of. So just come and learn about the need that is here in our area and uh, meet the fella who's uh, been called by God to jump in and help organize to get that need met. Man, this guy has passion. Just come in and meet him for his passion to follow Christ. And I think you'll benefit a lot. So we hope you can attend. That's next Sunday, right after the service. And then the, Mex the Mexico mission trip. Ooh. Who's been on that? Ooh. Who's excited about having been on that? Ooh. Who'd like to go again? Okay. <laughs> We're not saying it's going to happen. But we're not saying it's not going to happen. But uh, works are, uh, well, I should say works are in the works to uh, see if we can make that happen uh, coming up for spring break. So college students especially keep your spring break open because it could happen, all right? And uh, we want to be prepared if we get the green light to go and do that. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to invite Ted to come up here to talk about a really cool thing that's happening. So come on, Ted. Welcome, Ted. Thanks for wearing your Team Jesus shirt. Awesome. You wear that to work, too? Good. Hi, I'm Ted. Hi, I'm Ted. I'm not a public speaker at all, so I wish he was doing this instead of me. 
don't even know where to start. Um, he said I have 35 minutes, so I'm not this. Um, it's been on my heart since about 2016 to get a camper or RV, something like that, and put mobile showers in there for our homeless community who don't have a way to shower. There are so many places in this town that don't offer any place to shower. There used to be spots, but there aren't anymore. So our homeless have to go without showers for weeks. They can go to Hope Center, do their laundry, keep their clothes clean, but they can't clean themselves. So I was presented an opportunity to buy a camper. Um, it's got space for two showers. It needs work, but that's exactly what I was looking for. So God just dropped it in the lap. It's an awesome thing. Um, two years ago, it was supposed to happen, but COVID happened, so it didn't. It wasn't in his timing. This one's in his timing because everything so far is just falling right into place. I hate asking for any kind of help, but I'm asking for any of the brilliant minds that are in here who know how to put showers together and make them operational. I'm asking for your help. So that way we can we can take showers out into the street and have people get clean because we all love to be clean. It helps our self-esteem, it helps everything about us, it helps our health even. So I'm asking for your help. That's all. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Ted. So, uh, help Ted, help others. And uh, yeah, we do have a lot of brilliant minds and good hands, people that are able to work and stuff like that. So if you can do that, please make sure you catch Ted sometime before the service is over. Now, I don't have a slide for this one, but I just wanted to get it out there that an opportunity is arising. Uh, if you've never heard of the Perspectives course, uh, you're gonna hear about it now. Uh, the Perspectives course is probably some of the best training that I've ever taken in nearly four decades of Christian ministry. And it's not just to train ministers, well, it is to train ministers because every Christian is a minister. Every Christian is involved in the ministry uh, in some way. But it's really a great tool for uh, discipleship, for growing as a Christian, to really understand what God's purpose is uh, and how we are invited to be a part of that purpose. It will also train you to go anywhere in the world to take the gospel into another, another culture. But it doesn't mean that you have to do that if you take this training. It'll show you how to just go next door and take the gospel into the culture that we live in right here. Anyway, coming up in January, uh, January 9th will be the first session of that. And the first two sessions are free, okay? Uh, so that you can come and see if this is something you wanna invest your time in, all right? Uh, so Brian Faltinski signed me up without asking me. So I kind of had to take it. I won't do that to you. You get to make the option. You get to make the decision. But I would encourage you. It's that good. I would sign you up if I had the power to do that. So that's coming up in uh, um, January. So just stay tuned. I'll get you some more information. And if you want to talk to me about it today and learn more about it so you can plan, I'd love to talk to you about that. Okay, so again, uh, subscribe to our newsletter because you'll find information and links there that will get you to important communications that we want to get out to you. And uh, also go to our website, commongroundcma.org, and you can go to events and updates and stay on top of things there. All right, 
So it's time for us to get up and say hello to anybody, everybody. You know how when you go in for a handshake, but they're going in for a high five or something like that, how that accidentally happens? Go and do that on purpose. Whatever they're moving in for, you do the opposite. Go and say hi to everybody. <laughs>
you love us, how you have blessed us in our lives and shown your grace and mercy to us. Um, we just pray that this time would be honoring to you and that your will be done. Uh, we're now going to go into a time of offering. Up on the screen you should see um, uh, the different options uh, for giving. Um, we encourage giving uh, because it helps build the church um, in so many different ways. It helps grow the church overseas. It helps to grow the church here and in our community. So just pray about it. Um, ask God who, what he would have you do.
morning. Well, it didn't sound very awake at all. Jeez. Uh, welcome to the Come Around Church, guys. If you haven't been here before, thank you for coming. Um, if you have been here before, welcome back. Face uh, is old and new. Josh is here. If you haven't said hi to him, you definitely should. Uh, hi, Josh. Hi. everyone to do is we're going to pray in small groups, um, four to six people if you can find them. If you can't, you can pray by yourself if that's more comfortable. But um, the things that have definitely been on my heart recently and that I think is important to share with people around you is um, how God has been working in your life. Because I think sometimes I especially get really pigeonholed in this spot of I haven't seen what he's been doing, and I feel like I'm not um, doing as much as I should or getting in this place of how much am I producing, What, who am I sharing with, how is he doing these big things in my life, and a lot of the times a reminder of, like, there are other people <laughs> in the world that he is working with and working in, and that is almost as important, if not more, to just see that in other people and friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ here. Um, so what I'll ask of you guys is gathering in smaller groups, just like share the ways that God has been showing himself in your lives recently or in friends' lives, um, and if you feel that he hasn't, ask for prayer for that. Ask that um, the brave question of, like, God, will you give me opportunities? Will you show me these huge ways? Um, and even the small ways that you are in my life and in the world and just around. Um, and as well, praying for people who need to see Jesus, too. Um, all of those things, I think, are hard to see and hard to think about when you are living your life for you. But when you start living your life for Jesus, that's different. That's a different ballgame and a different life altogether. Um, so I'll give you guys some time to do that. And then a uh, prayer team, if you guys will raise your hands or stand or something. If you guys need prayer um, and want something to be prayed for, uh, find one of those guys. Yeah, Tim and Evan and Carol and Joey and myself and Nick. Um, so just if you need prayer for something, come find one of us. Um,
spends time with Jesus, right? Abides with Jesus. That a disciple of Jesus is like Jesus and does the things that Jesus does. And Nick started us off last week with a foundation of what a disciple is. And he explained that a disciple is someone who is a learner. A disciple is a learner, essentially. It's a student. It's an apprentice, right? That as disciples of Jesus, we are apprentices of Jesus. And that is, you know, if you're familiar with the term apprentice, an apprentice is someone who is usually looking to learn like a trade or a job. And so they will enter into a relationship with someone who is an experienced, you know, carpenter or plumber or electrician or Jedi Knight. And they would follow that person in relationship in order to learn how to do that job, in order to take on the skills, the characteristics, and the abilities that that person has to do that job so that they can then one day do that same job. And that's essentially what being a disciple of Jesus is. It's saying, I want to do what Jesus does. I want to be like Jesus. I want the skills, the abilities, the wisdom, the knowledge, the attributes of Jesus so that I can do that job. So now I want to start off with this question for you guys. Because anytime you're looking for an apprenticeship in what we would consider, you know, regular work, we think, okay, well, I'm going to apprentice under this person because I want that skill or I want that job, or this person is good at that thing, and so I want to follow them because that's that, or I want to apprentice under them because they are good at this. So I'm going to pose the question on you, and I'm going to give you just a minute or two to talk to those amongst you. What is Jesus good at that you want to be good at? Have you thought about that before? What is Jesus good at that you want to be good at? Now, I don't want to hear the smart aleck responses like, oh, Jesus is really good at saving the world or getting people out of hell. Okay, let's just be honest for a second and actually consider, what is Jesus good at that you want to be good at? Because I think it's when we consider this question um, that we can actually have a focused discipleship process where we don't just feel like we're aimlessly just thinking, well, I'm just trying to be as good of a Christian as I can be. But hopefully we've recognized something in the person of Christ and we're pursuing that aspect of his character, of trying to be like him. And so, talk amongst yourselves, share real fast, what is something Jesus is good at that you want to be good at? And then I want to hear some answers in a second. So tell the person next to you. What is Jesus good at? You want to be good at? Understanding what people need through relationships. Understanding what people need through relationships. 
almost too scary a voice but uh, being interrupted being interrupted you just ruined any plans you had for the week of you know that <laughs> <laughs> anyone else asking good questions asking good jesus asked really good questions yeah. luke you didn't have enough time on five. no i was the only one that talked so i had plenty these guys <laughs> leadership leadership one more. Heather? Loving people you don't like. Loving people you don't like. Oops. This is a tough theological question. Jesus doesn't work But I certainly do. So I would love to be better at that. Okay. So there are a lot of different things out there that Jesus is good at that we all want to be good at. And so we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, but because I'm the one with the microphone, we're going to talk about the one I want to be good at. And the one I want to be good at is I want to serve like Jesus. I want to serve others. I want to help others like Jesus. As you read through the Gospels, you just see Jesus helping others, solving problems, just changing lives in ways I cannot, and I have no idea how. And oftentimes I don't even have the desire to do that. But I want to serve like Jesus. But here's the thing, uh, when it comes to serving people like Jesus serves, or to helping people like Jesus helps others, the thing is that we cannot help others like Jesus until we actually see others like Jesus. And this is going to be kind of the big idea today, is that we cannot serve like Jesus until we see like Jesus. And we're going to see how this plays out in a story from uh, Luke chapter 8, where we see how Jesus sees the world, how Jesus sees people, problems, and power, and that's how it affects the way he serves. And honestly, as I've been reading through this and I've tried to consider in my own life, how, why can't I serve like Jesus, or why can't I help others like Jesus? What is getting in the way? And often it's because I see things differently than Jesus sees things. I see things differently than the way Jesus sees things. And the thing with discipleship is, okay, you know, we, we think so much about doing and acting like Jesus, and this doesn't seem like, you know, an action seeing like Jesus is more of like a quality or it's, it's an ability. It's not necessarily this tangible, active thing. But I think this is important because I know for myself, oftentimes I get caught up in the actions or like Winter just talked about during prayer time that we get so caught up in what we can control and in what we're doing and what we're producing. The problem with that line of thinking is that oftentimes you know, if we're only thinking about what we can do or what we are doing, then that's actually from the place where our service comes from, instead of being rooted in who Jesus is. And the reality is that I think our service and our helping of others is not going to be sustained long-term if we're just focused on the measurable actions that we can take, but I think our long-term service and our helping of others is only going to be like Jesus if we root it in his identity, uh, frankly. It starts with who Jesus is. It starts when we understand that this isn't just what I want to do or what I think I should do or, you know, what I feel guilty about doing or what I want to do so that people will think this is the kind of person I am. But when we actually serve from a place of knowing that this is who Jesus is. Because you see, often... When it comes to serving others, um, you know, we'll have the feeling that we should serve or we ought to serve, and we serve out of guilt or out of this obligation. And so what tends to happen, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, 
But what tends to happen is we find um, some little cause, um, we find a soup kitchen to help in, and we serve for a little bit, and we help others for a little bit. And then, after a while, it's just not as exciting as it used to be, or it just doesn't quite fit with our schedule the way it used to, and so slowly we just kind of stop. Stop serving that way, stop helping those people, and never really has any long sustaining power. Um, because oftentimes I myself am serving from a place of feeling like I ought to serve or I should serve or you know I'm, I just need to make sure that I am serving so that other people know that I'm a serving person and it doesn't actually come from who Jesus is but the reality is that who Jesus is is a servant is a helper and we have to root ourselves in his identity of this in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 Jesus said that the son of man talking about himself came to serve not to be served, which makes us servants. That that is rooted in his identity, and as his apprentices, as his followers, as people who want to do what he does, we are servants as well. And so we root our identity in the truth of who he is. And as you already saw on the screen here, as we seek to serve the way Jesus serves by seeing the way Jesus sees, we see in this passage that we're going to read in Luke chapter 8 really three things, or three ways that Jesus sees. We're going to talk about the way Jesus saw people, the way Jesus saw problems, and the way Jesus saw power. And it's alliterated, and I'm really proud of that because I'm never good at alliteration. So anytime I do, I'm like, oh, I finally got it. Pastors do it every week, and I might get it once every six months. So we're going to look at the way Jesus saw people, the way he saw problems, and the way he saw power. And we're going to do this by looking at Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. So if you haven't found your way there, hopefully I gave you enough time to find your way to Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Uh, we're going to go through this story, and this is really an amazing story. Uh, hopefully we're able to kind of pick this apart and really kind of learn something about who Jesus is and how he sees the world through it. Especially because the way that the Holy Spirit led Luke, who wrote this book, um, to tell this story is that he weaves actually two stories together in one. In this story, we're going to see these two different people in these two different lives woven into one with the intent of showing us the similarities of these two different people and with the intent to show us the contrasts as well. And it's from that that we get a picture of how Jesus sees the world, how Jesus sees people, how Jesus sees problems, and how Jesus sees power. And so he starts with story number one, and it's about this guy named Jairus. And actually, I'm going to... I'm going to grab a Bible. I forgot. Right up there. But we're going to see this story about a man named Jairus. Or if you really want to be a tryhard, pronounce his name correctly. It's going to be Jairus. But we're not trying to impress anyone, so we're going to call him Jairus. I'm kidding. I'm trying to impress you. But, always but so it's going to start in Luke chapter 8 verse 40. And the first thing we're going to see is the way that Jesus sees people. So Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl about 12, was dying. Okay, pause there. So we're looking at Jairus here. Now we see a few different things about Jairus right off the bat. But we don't see much, and actually it's as we get into the story a little later that we're going to learn a little more about him. But at this point, we've just learned a few things that basically he's like a leader and a dad. 
But we're going to see that his story is also woven into a story about this other woman as well. And that's where we're going to learn a lot of things. Because from the outset, it doesn't look like we learned much about him, but we actually, in those two verses, just learned a huge amount of information about Jairus. The first thing is very simple. Jairus is a man. We learned that. Okay? Don't overlook that. That's pretty significant. Being a man back in the first century was, you know, a much bigger deal and gave you a lot more authority and a lot more power and a lot more social um, credit in that society than it does today. And so Jairus, as a man, first off, has great power and authority just because of that. The second thing we learned about Jairus is his name, first off, that his name is Jairus. And I don't know if you've noticed it in the, in the Gospels especially before, but that the Gospels don't name people all that often. All the time, people will come and interact with Jesus, and it just tells you they were a leader in the synagogue, they were a Pharisee, they were a Sadducee, they were a man, they were a woman. And it doesn't tell you their name. But the fact that Luke, the Gospel writer here, gave us Jairus' name means that his name means something, right? He's significant. He was well known. To say that this was Jairus, people in that time would have known who Jairus is. Otherwise, just leave it out. Just say some dude. So he must be pretty important. And we know that it's important because it says that he's a ruler in the synagogue, right? A ruler of the synagogue. So he also has this sense of like political and cultural power. And the ruler of the synagogue at this time wasn't like a priest. He wasn't doing like priestly duties. His role would have been more like a judge or more like, I don't know, like a denominational president, so to speak, um, in Christian churches where he oversaw all the work at the synagogue there. And then we also see something in the way that Jairus interacts with Jesus. This man named Jairus just came and fell at the feet of Jesus. Walked right up to Jesus and fell at his feet. Now at this point in his ministry, Jesus was a bit of a local celebrity. He typically would have had you know, a crowd following him, or he would have had quite a few people around. And it's not always easy to kind of get through and navigate through a crowd to get to someone who the crowd's following. But nonetheless, Jesus here, or Jairus here, walks right up in front of Jesus in the middle of a crowd and fell at his feet and conveyed this act of honor and glory on Jesus. Walked right up to him. And one of the things that we can tell from this, you know, I guess we can kind of speculate two things. Um, one, either Jairus was just very bold. He was just a bold guy, very confident, which is probably likely. Or this is another sign of his influence, of his power, of the fact that when people saw Jairus coming, they're going to step out of his way. They're not going to get into his way because he's Jairus. He's important. He's this important guy. And then he falls at Jesus' knees, and he invites Jesus to his house. Okay, he believes, first off, that his sick daughter is important enough for Jesus to forget everything he's doing. Wherever you're going with this crowd, Jesus, my daughter is important enough for you to take a detour and to come and to heal her. And so this was also probably a sign of, of Jairus' boldness or of his influence, of him making the statement, Jesus, my daughter, is important enough for you to come. So these are some of the things that we learn about Jairus just in two verses. And now let's continue on the next two verses, and we're going to see Jairus' story interwoven with another person. Verse 43. 
As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been the subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. So pause there. Okay, now what do we see that's different about this woman and about Jairus? First one's obvious. She's not a man. She's a what? She's a woman, okay? So now a woman in this culture already meant she had less power, less influence than Jairus. She's a step down from Jairus there. Okay, now what is her name? We don't even know. Doesn't give her name, does it? She's kind of a nobody. She's just a woman in the crowd. The reality is that if they gave you her name, you wouldn't have known anything about her. People then, even around her, probably didn't know anything about her as well. And then it tells us that she's been struggling with this illness where she's been bleeding for 12 years. So now she's an unnamed sick woman. Unnamed sick woman. And this particular sickness um, actually would have even been treated as extremely as something like leprosy. So because of this permanent bleeding, this woman would have essentially been cast out of society she was breaking the law by being out in public, especially in a crowd where she was touching people, because the view that the rabbis taught at this time was that she were to touch you or you were to touch her because she had this illness, that you were then ceremonially unclean. So she was an outcast in society. She was someone who really had no social significance and was unnamed, was walking around in this crowd, hoping that no one would see her, hoping to hide there. And she was quite literally an outcast. Now I know that, you know, people kind of like the idea of outcast, where they'll self-identify as outcast a lot. Um, at a previous church I worked in, we actually had this whole small group of people who didn't actually go to our church, but they would meet at our church weekly, and they called themselves the outcast group, uh, because they were from a bunch of different churches in town, and they didn't feel like they fit in in any of these churches, and so they just started meeting at our church, and they were the outcasts. And when I saw their posters up and like everywhere, all over our church, I, and heard that none of them actually came to our church, I just thought I'll like pop into one of their meetings and kind of get to know them and see what the deal is. And basically that's the story they told is like, oh, we just like went to these other churches, but we didn't feel like we fit in. And so we're the outcasts and we just meet in this group. And I asked like, oh, have you ever like tried to come here and come to this church? And like, no, never, because we wouldn't fit in. And I was like, okay, like, I kind of believe that because it was a really unique church and unique culture where I didn't really feel like I fit in. It was in a country town where basically if you didn't own 100 acres, you didn't fit in. I mean, everybody else did. Uh, we even had, we had a specific small group just for plum farmers. Like, serious, a small group of plum farmers. And so I like, met them all one time and I was talking to them. I was like, okay, I just pointed to some random guy. I was like, okay, so you're a plum farmer. He goes, no, I'm not a plum farmer, I'm a prune farmer. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize that you prune prunes. Because I, I thought, like, it's just a pond that you dried out. And they all laughed at me, like, this guy doesn't think prunes are grown. <laughs> so I get that they didn't fit in, because <laughs> I did not feel like I fit in. Apparently I don't know how prunes are produced. But nonetheless, so we invited these people to church, these outcasts. They show up to church, and what happens? Everyone's really nice. Everyone loves them. They might not own 100 acres of prunes, but nonetheless, they were welcomed in, into the family. And now that entire group of like 14 people has gone to that church for like five years and has become part of the family. 
But nonetheless, they identified as outcasts when they really didn't need to. This lady needed to. Um, she would have been cast out of her family, cast out of society. She should have been walking around yelling unclean, unclean, so that nobody came near her. She was a sick, unnamed woman who literally was an outcast. And one of the things um, that we learned from this story is that no one could heal her, as it says um, in the NIV here. And if you have the ESV, um, it will say that some versions will say that she had spent all of her money on doctors or that no doctors could have healed her. And what would have happened to someone with a condition like this at that time is because they wanted so badly to get back into society, they were easy prey um, for scam artists or for people who would just pitch something to heal you because they thought, I will do anything and everything I can to get back in society and to not be an outcast. And so most likely, she had probably spent all of her money on these cures, on these remedies, so that she could get back. But none of it worked. So here she is, unhealed, nameless woman. And Jesus is he's walking through the crowd, and he first encounters Jairus. And Jairus is this powerful leader in the synagogue. This man who comes right up in front of him, and he asks Jesus to come heal his daughter. And Jesus' response was yes, and he was going to do it. And then while Jesus was going on this important mission to go heal this important, powerful man's daughter, this woman comes up to Jesus. And I guess I forgot to talk about how she comes up, right? Okay, she doesn't come up right in front of him like Jairus does, does she? She just sneaks up through the crowd. Another contrast. That is intentionally there to contrast her with Jairus. She just sneaks through the crowd to touch the hem of his, his clothes there. And when she does this, Jesus stops in verse 45. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter, they could probably tell he was mad. Like, oh. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And I honestly have no idea what this means, that the power shot out of him somewhere. But this is an incredible moment. This is an incredible moment. Verse 47, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So then she had to out herself and she had to explain, I just got healed of this sickness. Um, and I actually wasn't even supposed to be in public, but I'm instantly healed. And she had that risk to, to reach out and to touch Jesus. And Jairus probably did have some risk as well, because Jesus wasn't necessarily popular in the synagogue. So he was probably risking, you know, some of his reputation as well. But Jairus was also the boss, so how much was he really risking? Um, but nonetheless, this woman, she worked her way through the crowd and touched his cloak and instantly healed. And just outed herself and said, I've been healed from this. And now when Jairus walked up to Jesus, no doubt that people probably stepped back, like I said, right? Like, oh, Jairus is coming. Well, I don't want to get in his way. He's a powerful person. And I'm sure when this woman shared the reality that she had been bleeding for 12 years, the crowd probably had the same response. Like, whoa, I'm going to get out of your way because I don't want none of that. I don't want to be ceremonially uncleaned. And people would have viewed these two very differently. But yet they're still dissimilar. And many of us, I think, you know, given the situation, we wouldn't be able to really treat them 
the same, or we wouldn't be able to view these two people the same like Jesus did. And many of the people in that culture, you see Jairus, and all the contrast that he has between this one, right? But Jesus in this situation just has no care um, for the power of one person, for the significance, the influence of one, and for the insignificance of another, right? Jesus was going to go help Jairus, and he was also going to stop for this woman. That Jesus saw Jairus as a son who had a daughter who was sick, and at the very same time, he saw this unnamed, unhealed, unclean woman as simply a daughter who was also sick. Jesus saw this woman as a daughter who was sick, and he just had no regard um, for the way that others viewed people. He had no regard for it. Jesus doesn't treat them any differently. He doesn't view Jairus any different than being a son of God made in the image of God. And he views this woman as an image-bearing daughter as well. And the reality is that until we see people the way that Jesus saw people, just like this, then we will never help or we will never serve the way that Jesus helps, the way Jesus serves. Mm -hmm. That we have to see people the way Jesus saw people. Just a complete disregard for all of the things that the world cares about. So that's the way Jesus saw people. Jesus also saw problems very differently. So we're going to continue on in verse 48 here. Because after, after he healed her, Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Faith has healed you. Go in peace. And this is a really common saying, uh, go in peace. This would be essentially like saying, saying see you later today when we have no intent to see them later, right? It's just a common phrase. Um, but it didn't start out as a common phrase um, because what Jesus said here was shalom. Okay, bye, shalom. And it had become just a common phrase, but Jesus being kind of the originator of that phrase, he knew it meant, and he didn't just throw it out there as a common greeting. Uh, we've talked about it a few times before in some of our previous series, but that shalom, shalom is this incredible peace, wholeness, completeness, that God created the world in. He created the world in shalom. And before the fall, that was his intention, for the world to be placed shalom. But because of the fall, because sin has entered the world, his shalom is not intact the way it's supposed to be. And, and when Jesus returns one day, he will bring back shalom and put the world back together. And it's these moments of, of healing, of people who have illnesses and sicknesses being made whole that Jesus gives these glimpses of shalom. I don't know if you remembered us uh, like last December talking about inaugurated eschatology. Do you remember that term we talked about? Lots of eyebrows just like what? <laughs> Ask someone if they remembered what inaugurated eschatology means. It means that so Jesus began to bring back shalom. When he came, he gave these glimpses in a fallen world of wholeness of what the world is supposed to look like. Because the world is full of people who, daughters who are dying and women who have these illnesses, and then Jesus comes in and reminds us of what it's going to be like one day or what it was supposed to be like. And Jesus shows us in this little instance how we're actually supposed to view problems, right? How we're actually supposed to view problems and 
pain, and we're supposed to look at them and see them in the context of his shalom, or in the context of his promised shalom that will come one day. That in God's kingdom, that one day when Jesus returns, that these problems will go away, that they will be no more. And in light of this, these problems don't quite seem as big as do they? problems don't seem like that big of issues. And I know for me, when it comes to helping others or serving others, the size of the problem is often a deterrence for me to step out and help, because I often see problems and I just think that is too big for me. Just like a normal middle-class person with not a lot of time to help, this isn't something that I should engage in or tackle, because it's just too big for me. But I only have a few hours each week to this, and I don't have that many resources, and I don't know that many people, like, this problem is too big. This problem is too big. But Jesus sees this problem in light of the whole gospel story, right? In light of Shalom. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, he wrote this. He said, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are seeking for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not, what, um, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so to Jesus, these troubles, these problems that we face, he's saying they're light and momentary. He's essentially saying that our problems, the biggest problems that we can see are small. And now I know that this is a really hard thing to hear, and it really feels like, oh, we're minimizing our problems or minimizing our pain. But it's really not minimizing the problem or minimizing the experience of pain. It's just maximizing the hope of shalom. It's putting it in context that this is a huge problem, and Jesus is affirming that. But what I can do and my ability is so much bigger, and it's in comparison here that our problems, our troubles, are just light and momentary. And Jesus is calling us to see our problems, to see our pain, to see the things that people are going through in the context of the full gospel, in the context of shalom, in the context of what he can do about that problem. And when compared to that, we see that he is much bigger, much more powerful, much more permanent than any of our problems could ever be see our problems in this light. Continue in verse 49 here. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned to her, and at once she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, and he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So for Jairus, this problem looks too big. And this person from his house even came up and said, hey, it's too late, she's dead, don't bother Jesus anymore. This problem's too big. 
But this problem wasn't too big for Jesus, was it? It was light and momentary compared to what he could do. And Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And it looks like in the chronology of the story that Jesus was able to say this to him immediately after <coughs> Jairus was able to witness this act of healing for this woman. So this insignificant, unnamed woman with this bleeding problem that no doctors could seem to fix was just healed. And Jairus witnesses this. And then Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. And Jesus was calling Jairus to see things through his eyes, to see that this problem isn't too big. Your daughter is dead. That seems like a lost cause. But don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. See this problem through the context of me and what I can do. And the reality that even this uncurable illness can be healed by me from just the touch of the end of my rope, from just the faith of this woman, who Jairus probably wouldn't have thought had very big faith. This is, this is the call that Jesus puts on us, then, to view our problems, our pain, our situations, but situations in front of us that seem too big for us to handle, to view them in light of what Jesus can and will do here. The fact that he, with just the touch of his garment, can heal this disease that's been going on for 12 years. Or that he can walk up to a dead person and simply say, get up. Or in some versions, it'll just have the word arise. And in one word, this lost cause is not a lost cause. It's actually a very small problem to him. Arise, and all of a sudden, she is alive. And honestly, for those of us who follow Jesus, um, whose hope is built on the resurrection of the dead, in contrast to a lot of the different problems that we will face, if our hope is built on the resurrection, then the problems that we face should seem insignificant as well. <laughs> if we are people who believe that Jesus raises the dead, then we can be people who believe he can heal sickness. Because in comparison, I don't know how you would gauge things, but I would put death as probably being more complicated than healing sickness. Jesus, in this case, showed that. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be healed. And he shows us the way in which we're invited to see our problems. Not in light of what they are, but in light of who he is and what he can do. And finally, this last thing, the way that Jesus sees power differently. Um, Jesus said in verse 50 there to Jairus, he said, don't be afraid, just believe and she'll be healed. And he tells this to Jairus right after he hears that his daughter is dead. And he also said to that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He basically tells both of them that there is such power on offer for me that any of these situations can be solved. Any of these situations, this terrible illness that would push a woman out of society, this terrible death that would look like the end of hope for this family, actually is nothing compared to his power. And it's again in 1 Corinthians, um, but earlier in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote this. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, 
so that no one may boast before him. And what Jesus was showing in this instance is that whether in the face of great power or, you know, with Jairus and the influence that he had, or in the face of no power and insignificance like this woman had, essentially the prayer is the same. The prayer is to God. The prayer is to Jesus, to the one who actually holds power. Because for most people who would have been looking at this situation, they would see this woman and say, well, she's completely powerless to do anything. Um, there's no hope, so we don't really know who to turn to. And for Jairus, the idea is, well, this guy has significant power. He can probably just solve it himself. He probably has access to the best doctors, the best whatever you need to solve this sickness and this illness. But the reality is, in this situation, uh, no power still had the result of being healed by Jesus. And having immense power still had the result of having a daughter die, but nonetheless being healed by Jesus. That neither Jairus's earthly power nor the lack that this woman had made a difference in this case. That it was actually Jesus's power, that it's faith in him that changes things, that helps others, that leads to service. Just yesterday we had a meeting for Camp Halawasa that uh, a bunch of us here from Common Ground are on the board of. And at Camp Halawasa, uh, one of the games that you have there that you play with the kids is Nine Square in the Air. I have a picture of Nine Square here. It's a really fun game. Um, it's really fun to play against middle schoolers when you're over six feet tall. Um, you're playing against these little kids who are trying to hit the ball into your square, and basically there's a king square, like where that guy with the ball currently is, and your goal is to get to the king square and to stay there as long as you can. And if kids are smart when they're playing with me, they just won't go for me, but they'll, you know, try to, you know, just get a good relationship and try to be on my side so that I can just spike it on everybody else and not on them, and then they can move their way up the square. But every once in a while, you know, these cocky little middle schoolers start to think that they're tough and think that they're strong, and they think, I'm going to try to get Evan out. And I can't, they would try to do this every time. They're like, oh, I'm going to get it. And they would come for me. And it's in that case... In those cases, when they tried to do it on their own, and they tried to get to the king on their own, that I was able to show them what true power looks like. <laughs> and I would say, you little boy, I'm going to crush you. So just like spike it on them. And it, was, it makes you feel really good as a man to beat up on them. But this is frankly what we often do ourselves, isn't it? That we could tap in to the power that is Jesus and not try to do it on our own, not try to make it on our own. And if we do that, then it works out and he handles things and he spikes it on everyone around us and we don't have to worry about it. Um, but it's when we grasp to try to do it out of our own four foot ten ability to get it over that the plan doesn't always work out. And the call of Jesus actually, when faced with these big problems, these hard situations is to tap into his power, right? To rely on him. To not try to do it on our own, out of our own ability. Because compared to him, we're just a middle school boy. We're just not cut out for it. It's whatever we can accomplish, whatever Jairus thought he had going for him in life, which was significant, it didn't compare to what Jesus had to offer. And it's actually only when we see that real power and the real ability to change things belongs to Jesus and Jesus only, then we'll be able to serve, then we'll be able to help the way Jesus helps.
so that's what we learn in the story. That if we want to serve like Jesus, if we want to help like Jesus, then we have to see like Jesus. And it's only when we see every man as simply God's son, and every woman as simply God's daughter, that we're able to serve them the way he does. And it's only when we see pain and problems in the context of how big Jesus' solutions are and the reality that they're temporary compared to what he can provide. And it's only when we see that real power belongs to him alone, that we rely on him, not on our own courage. And so it's then that we can serve like Jesus, that we can be a true disciple who, who actually do his work in the world. And I know for many of us, then we say, like, okay, but, like, we're talking probably about, like, huge things and huge problems, and I don't really want to change the world. Like, I don't want to reinvent the wheel or do anything big. I just want to serve. Get that over with. Not trying to do too much. And I get that, and I understand that. But the reality is that we know the situations in which God calls us to when we have served significantly, when we have helped significantly. And typically it's those situations where we have leaned in fully and tapped into Jesus' power and been an agent of God's shalom in those situations when usually it's not because we were serving because we felt like we had to or because we just felt like it was something we should do. It's in those cases that it's typically with someone who we love dearly or with someone that we have a deep connection with, right? The, the people we serve the most and the best are typically family, right? People we have a connection to. I don't think it's a secret that, okay, probably the person I serve the most in life or that I could serve the best and help the best is going to be Lena. And the reality is that I just love her more than I love anyone else. You know? <laughs> and it's not that I won't serve you or that I don't love you, but we know how that works. And you, and you will serve your family and you will serve your loved ones more than you will serve anyone else because of who they are to you. And that's just the way it is and the way it's supposed to be. But it's in this opportunity that Jesus gives us to say, well, see them as my son, see them as my daughter, see them the way that I see them. And it's when we're, we're serving, we're helping out of this deep connection to him that we're able to see them the way he sees them. Because we won't just see them through our own eyes in that way. Because we don't have that relationship. We don't have that connection. But Jesus does have that relationship and that connection for them. And so this again goes back to his identity. It again goes back to our relationship and our apprenticeship to him. Where in order to see others the way Jesus sees them, that we also have to see Jesus and to be connected with him. In order to even have access to those sides, to that vision. Unless that we see who he is, then we'll be able to see others the way he sees them. And so really it starts with our relationship to him, with our ability to see who he is. He's the kind of God, he's the kind of father, he's the kind of person we want to disciple under because he's the one who sees someone like Jairus and doesn't say, oh, that's a rich man who doesn't need any help, or that's someone that I could help and it would be good for me. He simply sees him as a son who has a sick daughter. And it's then that we can see someone like this woman, who we might look at and say, oh, this is an insignificant, sick woman, I don't really want to be around her. But we can see her as Jesus sees her, as simply a daughter who is sick and in need of being made whole. 
that's unless we see those things through his lens that we can't serve the way he serves. And this woman who was suffering this debilitating illness for 12 years was healed because of her faith in Jesus. And Jairus' daughter, who was probably living a good life for 12 years before death took it all, also was given everything back by Jesus because of the way he saw it. And this story for both of these people ended in life. It ended in display of Christ's power, display of what he can do. And so whether you have been seeking to help or to serve like Jesus, and whether you've been doing it at your own strength, or whether you've been doing it because you feel like you ought to or you must, would you just tap into Jesus' power? Would you follow him so closely that you're able to see the way he sees? That you're able to see the problems in light of what he offers? And that you're able to rely on his power and not on your own? Would you allow him to change the way you see so that you can change the way you serve, to serve the way he is? So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Well, Father God, just thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you've woven these two stories together to show us who you are. And Father, I just recognize that for myself, I... I always want to jump to the application, to, to what do I do about it, to the action step that I want to control and that I want to do. I just thank you for the reminder that it begins with who you are, not, not what I can do. And so would you continue to reveal who you are to me? And Jesus, over this next week, would you give all of us here in this room eyes to see people the way that you see them? Would you give us eyes to see problems the way that you see them? Would you just continually remind us of your plans, of your ability, of your shalom, so that we can see our pain, that we can see our problems, that we can see our circumstances in comparison to you. And Jesus, I just pray for comfort for those of us who are facing those circumstances and problems that just seem too big. Would we not be a people who try to rely on our own power or on whatever the world has to offer, but would we be a people who rely on you, who recognize that you and you alone have the power. And we commit to being a people follow you closely. Follow you closely, and it's through that relationship, through this discipleship that we will be changed and made like you, and we'll be able to serve and to help others like you. So Jesus, it's in your name that we pray.
dedication class. I promise it won't take too long, just 10 to 15 minutes to explain that practice and then to schedule uh, when it is that we'll do that. So I encourage you to stick around for that. And then as you go, would you go with the words of Romans chapter 12? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, pain, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. So grace and peace, common ground. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.